In a time where startups are booming and entrepreneurship is at a peak, we have a service that will help elevate any business. Univercole provides graphic design services that can take your business to the next level. These services include customized logos, business cards, brochures, flyers, and documents such as letterhead to help you distinguish your brand identity. We know a lot of you are like our founder, Justin, and are starting your businesses from scratch. So we also offer brand identity packages that can include your logo design, business cards, a digital promotional flyer, customized documents, announcements, and more. We understand what it's like to start from scratch and can meet you where you are in your business. Email info at univercole.design, U-N-I-V-E-R-C-O-L-E, for a consultation and view the Univercole portfolio on Instagram and Facebook at Univercole, U-N-I-V-E-R-C-O-L-E. And now back to the Cole Logic Podcast. Who told you that? Your Highness. New Year, new me. Same deal. <clears throat> You're now tuned in to another Cold Logic Experience. Hey. Cold Logic Bookshare. We still in this thing. Shout out to the Queen. The Black Woman's Guide to Understanding the Black Man by Shaharazad Ali. <clears throat> Last chapter we left off of what was it? Education. Where do we aim to go after education? Employment. That's on the right. We on chapter six. If you're with us. Appreciate uh, appreciate you guys listening so far. If you're watching the YouTubes, you see the cash app going across the screen. Dollar sign C O N L E one two one two. Venmo at U N I V E R C O L E. That is Junior Cole. <clears throat> If you want to check my links, go to solo.to backslash CodeLogicX. We're going to turn this thing down. Like I said before, last time we left off at chapter 5, which was education. And then... At the end of chapter 5, they had some questions for the black men. I'm going to repeat them. Hopefully you guys that are listening uh, were able to maybe answer those. If you were, I hope you put them in the comments. But I'm going to ask them again. Number one, are you qualified to perform a certain job? Two, do you know how to make money legally? Number three, can you survive if the white man fires you? Number four, do you spend any of your money in a black-owned business? 
Number five, are you making any plans for hard times? Number six, are you destroying our people just to make money? Number seven, which comes first, your children or your wardrobe? And number eight, do you help your parents? That being said, we're going to start off with chapter six, which is an employment. And it goes a little something like, in the fall of 1991, Tony Brown, a bold speaking black man journalist, revealed in one of his sizzling syndicate, syndicated columns that he had found out from a recent government report that the most successful small businesses of the 1980s were operated by white males who earned on the average about 200 grand per year. Asian men came in second, making a little over a hundred grand per year, with Hispanic men taking third place with almost 70,000 per year. Black men struggled in last place, grossing about $50,000 annually. Well, you know I had to stop because right now the median earning for black men per year right now is 44 might be 42 somewhere between 42 and 44k and they say we be progressing. Come on, man. Come on. Anyways. <clears throat> Brown further attested that blacks comprise 12% of the U.S. population, but the black businesses generated less than 1% of all business receipts. We thank Tony Brown for staying on the case year after year and periodically calling our attention to economic matters that impact on black dollars. A few years back, Brown announced that black organizations spend $16 billion every year hosting their annual national conventions in white-owned hotels, restaurants, airlines, and other companies connected with getting to and from the conventions. These black organizations, numbering nearly 1,000, meet to address social and financial issues. They organize and do good works for their communities, provide scholarships, and distribute information. The discovery of them spending $16 billion a year to come together to discuss South Africa, poverty, illiteracy, drugs, and crime in the black community is monumentally embarrassing. Especially since many of the problems on their agendas can be eliminated with money and human resource people. No one knew that they were handling such big books, and sadly, it still has not occurred to them to consider pulling such a vast amount of money and building their own convention centers, 
one in each of the four corners of America to keep those dollars among themselves. They could hire many of the African-American employees currently working at the white-owned hotels who are already trained to do that kind of work. Of course, none of this will ever happen because black men would rather die and go to hell before they would agree to place $16 billion in the possession of another black man for safekeeping. So, the European-owned convention industry is not holding its breath waiting to see what's going to happen because they already know that their convention facility calendars are already booked for use by black organizations reserved through the year 2000. She said 1991. Reservations continue to be made after Tony Brown announced how much money was leaving the black community and flying into the wallets of white hotel owners. It doesn't seem to matter what color the flag is when it comes to signal and important financial discovery. The flag information in parentheses, I mean in yes, parentheses, is either ignored or ripped to shreds. Taking on big projects to create jobs for themselves without endorsement of the white man is not appealing to the black man. He finds it easier to work for someone else. The US Labor Bureau reports that trends predicted, predict by the year 2000, women will make up 50% of the workforce. Robotics and computers have eliminated thousands of positions and promised to erase more by the turn of the century. There used to be a time when unskilled and low-skilled black men could pinch out a living doing slow menial work required only the five senses or gargantuan strength. But these leaf-ranking, foot-dusting positions have vanished, and modern technology is biting at the heels of other middle-skilled steady jobs. White scientists seem to have gotten so carried away with discovering ways to increase production by making manufacturing less labor-intensive that they forgot to devise an alternate plan to, of what to do with all the workers that their new machines replace. Black men and black male youth bear the brunt of this predicament. More of them are out of work and untrained to work with than the males in any other nationality inland. Many black men report that they know for a fact from experience that black women are given preferential treatment in the workplace and often snatch jobs from under their feet. They imply that the women should step back and let them get at the head of the line to get work. Public outcry from black feminist organizations absolutely reject this idea as one designed to stop the economic progress of women or as just another excuse the black man makes for not finding a job. By right, the reason of pecking order and natural law, the black man should receive preference 
for employment because he is responsible for the conditions of the rest of his people, the women, the children, and the senior citizens. He is the only one who is in authority and his leadership for defense, protection, and decision-making should be supported. In 1931, the National Education Association reported that 75% of all American cities banned the employment of white women if it would take a job away from a white male trying to support his family. This was during the Depression era and represented one of the unspoken rules among white males to support maintenance of their authority both in the home and on the job. While this appears cruel and unfair to women who justifiably have a need to earn a living and advance their careers, the male psyche demands self-preservation as first priority. Black men have this same innate attitudinal instinct because he is the original man, the maker, owner, and creator of all we see connected to life on and off the earth. History documents that when push comes to shove our survival, women and children have never been first. While this seems barbaric or ruthless, one must not forget that the first person of specific gender who appeared on earth was God, and God is a man. That could be controversial, but I'm not denying it. Thus, he functions with the assumption that if humanity is threatened in any manner, he intends to be the last to concede his life. While the black man demonstrates by his behavior that he is not worthy or qualified to be the boss of the black nation according to the challenges presented as the proving ground, the fundamental essence of his being screams out to be in charge. His feelings of superiority over every other man stems from the nucleus of his being that he is the best man. This instinct is something innate, bred in his bones, even when he can't verbalize or defend it by acceptable example. This inherent superiority often earns him accusations of being conceited, arrogant, and thinking that he is better than everyone else. This superiority instinct is nearly the best kept secret black men have. Both drive and instinct are natural reactions, but they can be altered by training which can turn into a habit and eventually considered the norm. So today, black men try to make perfectly clear that they don't think they're better than anybody else. They recite, I don't think I'm better than anybody else. I think I'm just as good as any other man. I'm not superior, but I'm not inferior either. I just want to be equal. I'm not any different from any other man. I'm not trying to say I'm better, but I'm just as good. Imagine the 
frustration they must feel from wanting to vocalize and act out their superiority but must stifle these claims because of his status. The only arena in which they are encouraged to demonstrate their superiority is in their ability to play sports. In practically every other encounter in their life, they are provoked in one way or another because of the standard rules put, pitted against them to agree with or claim their own inferiority. The source of this pain is rooted in every aspect of his daily life and it is a pain that he doesn't think he can do anything about it. Sorry, I had to adjust my seat, get my back straight, and feel me. <clears throat> Might as well. All right. This often happens to him when applying for a job or when he is on the job. His lack of vocational skills evoked the terminology of being referred to as a hardcore unemployed. And certainly, there are black men qualified in many skills who also cannot find work in the system that compensates them enough to survive. He approaches a workplace to apply for a job with understandable apprehension. He has been told, hinted to, shown, or deduces on his own that as a black man, he is going to have a hard time convincing a white personal clerk, personnel clerk that he can do a job and deserves to have it. He already knows that the complications of this interaction expands the further up the job rung he climbs. He knows he is talked to differently, spoken to in a different tone, given special regulations, or earns a lower pay. There are not controls to manipulate the internal workings of every job site in America, and much of what he views is degrading and he is very sensitive on this. It hits on his ego so negatively that sometimes he would rather not work at all. So when forced to choose between doing a certain kind of work or living in poverty, the job does not raise as the lesser of the two evils. This often occurs on low paying or high paying jobs. After being inducted through this kind of ego agony, he has to compensate himself in some way. He can either find a way around the problem, give up as explained above, or rationalize to himself that he didn't want the job anyway. The latter choice is often visibly manifested in his physical posture. He walks with a swanky gait. He walks like he's strutting. He walks in some exaggerated way that reminds him on taking every step that he is somebody special, either powerfully strong, beautifully handsome, or daringly antagonistic. The special way of walking 
attributed to him is very important to his mental state of mind, especially his tender to the touch ego. As a black man develops confidence from achievement, acceptance, or recognition, his gait returns to a more normal stance and he gives a little thought to the slant of his body or his foot cadence when walking. This also applies to what he does with his hands or his arms. Interesting. A motivation to work is best stimulated by a knowledge of the results. The only knowledge that most black men have about the results of working is that it will help them pay their bills, dress, and have a good time. The good time may just be his ability to buy any material item he deserves. This is not the right incentive for him to use to go to work, but the black man has little knowledge or familiarity with the good feeling that comes from providing goods and services for his own consumption. He has no recollection of a time when he was not dependent upon someone else in authority over him to help him provide for him. He isn't versed in being in charge of his own destiny based on being self-sufficient or able to rely on his own ability to supply the things he needs to survive. His lack of knowledge about the thrill of independence began about 75 years ago when he determined the only way to absorb himself into white America and match their quality of life was to pursue legal means of accountability through the courts. While involved with the failures inherent in that system, his already temperamental ego flared. His emotions jumped in and he took to trying to shame the government and inspire enough pity from the masses to give him psychological freedom and tangible donations. Remember now, at the time he was already declared physically free and although Europeans were over 300 years of him, ahead of him in business and industry, he should have begun where he was and started to work for him financial independence. He could have done this because study revealed that he actually discovered much of the machinery and technology the Europeans used to speed their economy. He had done that, had he done that, he would control enough goods and services to write his own ticket and eliminate it calling on the white man every time he wanted to do something. He should have done this. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, which is as far as the black man gets in solving his economic burdens. And it's conceivable that he was so psychologically traumatized by his recent enslavement that he was desperate for an immediate fix and the court seemed the shortest route. He was as wrong then as he is now but his patterns of searching for legal remedy remains. To all my moors out there. <clears throat> the point of these comparisons between a long time ago, the 60s, and the current times is to reveal the black man's pattern of technique he uses to try to get what he wants. Freeing the body and freeing the mind are two completely different motions. 
It's not fair to charge black men across the board with being lazy or and refusing to work, but he is sometimes known for evoking creative ways to avoid physical labor. The black man will, one, say he can't find a job which pays enough to be worthwhile. Two, pretend to be injured under work comp. Uh, malingering such as a bad back serious headaches dizzy spells or poor vision three playing crazy to get unlimited free drugs and sympathy four never move out of his parents house usually his mother and lets her continue to support and take care of him five become a so-called professional student stay in school or something type of training changing his field of study all to avoid executing a plan for day-to-day survival by working six becoming an alcoholic or drug addict to avoid dealing with reality period It's perfectly understandable that after the black man's release from slavery, the last thing he wanted to do was go back to work again. Another reason black men have problems working on a job is that it may sometimes be difficult for him to understand what he is supposed to do. He may lapse on his ability to understand certain terminologies, experience discomfort at being directly given an order because he realized immediately that he doesn't know how to do it. Black men do not always know how to mentally separate the steps of action required to compete to I mean to complete a task. The savaging of his intellect has already been addressed in the chapter discussing his learning disabilities. But another aspect to be considered is that his lack of self-worth and repression of his real nature causes him to feel so emasculated that he freezes mentally. This added to his unnatural inclination to not want anybody to tell him what to do makes it appear as if he is naturally hostile or slow-witted. But he is a man who all his life have been told, directed, or forced to obey other people. Black men in business say that it is extremely difficult for a black man to get another black man to work with the same attentiveness and level of energy that they smilingly deliver to a white male or white female boss. They say this is another example of how black men don't respect each other or think that a black male is qualified or justified in being his boss or supervisor. Black men who say they try to hire other black men, say when employed, they are tardy too much, take too long for lunch, play around on the job, lie, take off from work for invalid reasons, will still undermine their efforts, argue back, sleep, come to work untidy, waste materials, 
work slow and have an all-around lackadaisical attitude, these allegations are duly documented as a typical as typical of their work on some jobs supervised or owned by whites. White and black men complain of another kind of behavior he exhibits on the job. He plays the clown. He will pass notes or photos displaying gutter humor and will stand and listen attentively at whites telling racist jokes and laugh as if they are funny. They will also laugh at any other kind of joke a white male might share with them. They still do a lot of grinning and shuffling to try to impress their white supervisors with their uh, their affability and secret flashbacks of being the happy slave. This is an old style tactical move to get on the good side of the master. This is also called brown nosing, doing something to get special approval from the boss. Their thoughts and behaviors are contradictory to how they really feel, but they think that if they present their real personalities, they will be viewed as a threat for attempting to overpower the boss or make the boss uncomfortable by functioning as an equal. He has a lot to deal with. In 2022, they call that imposter syndrome or code switching. Every black man who is working or has ever worked in the majority white, excuse me, in the majority white job site or has been employed as the token black has laughed at jokes that were not funny not responded to incidents they viewed as racist and allowed white males to disrespect them or insult unrelated black women in another way in one way or another i'm gonna read that again every black man who is working or has ever worked in a majority white job site or has been employed as the token black has laughed at jokes that were not funny, not responded to incidents they viewed as racist, and allowed white males to disrespect them or insult unrelated black women in one way or another. He has swallowed all this. It has given him a permanent lump in his throat and a crack in his mirror. Boss, uh-oh. Boss comes from the old German word Bozan, which means to beat. These days, many black men say the economy is too slow to try to go into business or attempt to do anything to make money independent of the system. There are many benefits to going into business during hard times if one can manage to get products or provide a service. A. Large companies who streamline their operations whose business is in recession can no longer provide special attention or customer service to the little man or little enterprise. B. Wholesale goods are lower priced, cheaper to acquire. C. 
office space is cheaper because of failed tenants. D. Labor rates can be negotiated at a lower level. E. There are more opportunities to sell lower priced items. Blacks who say they try to do business with black men in business complain as usual that their prices are too high, delivery is too slow, they don't respond to calls in a timely fashion, will abscond with deposits, don't follow through on warranties, sell defective products, take too long to finish a job, or will abandon a job before completion after they are paid in full. They use these file ups to com- explain why they only spend about 7% of their incomes trying to do business with black men. Every nationality in America has established clearly defined districts in which many of them have come together in the same area and open businesses. Sometimes these areas spread over several box blocks on both sides of the street or consist of minimals, mini malls, or the like. They become booming trade and cultural centers and often tourist attractions. These ethnic groups come together and agree to work together to form a business venture in some sort to display their capabilities of making a living in their own way. Chinatown districts, Hispanic, Asian, Korean businessmen all are known for basically working and living close together. They maintain their ethnic individuality while still obeying the rules and regulations to operate a business in America. The black man has few examples nationwide of this kind of business unity. If they are in the same business, in the same town or state, they do not ordinarily come together about the needs or happenings in those businesses. They do not purchase together wholesale to get a better price. They do not share information about operational advances they will discover and they do not back each other up if one of them fails on financial difficulty. If one of them falls on financial difficulty. These practices are unworkable for progress among like groups trying to earn a living of 280 million Americans. Europeans are masters at setting agendas, moving on an idea, and convincing constituents to offer support by showing them how it will benefit them to cooperate. From the first day they came here, they agreed to uphold the plan, stick to the ideas agreed on, and share in the success. The educators, the businessmen, the scientists, the doctors, the lawyers, industry, Politicians, common laborers, wives and mothers, and the founding fathers who set the agenda all agreed. When any small or large group of people agree to unify to achieve something, they succeed. 
This is not to say that they did not have debates or problems trying to absorb or reject various suggestions, but they agreed on basic premises and worked the kinks out as they arose. They, and they stood steadfast together as a solid wall unified in their conclusions to install the foundations of their ideas which would preserve their culture and aptly provide their future generations with a system of rulership. These founding white fathers agreed. They made the sacrifices, did the things they didn't want to do, worked harder than they preferred, played by the rules they agreed on, ducked it out on the streets if necessary, but they held fast to the goal and taught their sons and daughters how to preserve the system. And they, too, agreed. They agreed to continue to work day and night to keep it going and to teach it to their own children right on down the line. Each new generation perpetrated the original plan and proven on it wherever they could. Obviously, the above is a broad description of how they did it, what they did, but it certainly gives the greatest value as being agreement and unity. Black men, on the other hand, take special time to point out that they are not all alike and do not wish to be lumped in with all other black men or blacks in general. The recent most fashionable trend in their dialogue is to intellectually point out the black community is not monolithic. Man, they definitely brought that back out a couple years ago. The only unique aspect of the black man's personality is that he and his kind are not monolithic. Every nation all over earth when learning of their poor quality of life and injustices black endure in America realize that they suffer these in indignities because they are not monolithic. Mm. I'm going to read that again. Every nation all over earth when learning of the poor quality of life and injustices black Sendur in America realize that they suffer these indignities because they are not monolithic. I need to tweet that. Give me a second. Let me turn this up real quick.
Monolithic means stone-like and firm. Mm. I should have read that before I paused it. The black man is not firm in holding on to his own ideas. His lack of lithification causes him not to be solidified on any issues concerning his own people. He has defined and redefined, adjusted and readjusted, changed and rechanged himself over and over continually trying to fit in, repeatedly trying to mold himself into the image others have chosen for him. Each time he remakes himself, it is with the hopes that he will finally qualify for full acceptance Justice and respect he believes he is due as a man. He says he is disgusted with the way other black men behave and think. He says he is embarrassed by their actions and savagery, and he uses the worst examples of his kind to tell himself that there is no point in him trying to make a change for the better by himself. Man, I have an associate that I argue with almost daily that makes that last sentence his point of contention with everything I have an opinion on. But I'm going to read it again. He says he is embarrassed by their actions in savagery and he uses the worst examples of his kind to tell himself that there is no point in him trying to make a change for the better by himself. He says that most dudes are liars, jive, can't be trusted, and will steal your women if you turn your back. They always use other black men as the reason that African Americans are not together or making any progress. He only feels this way because all of the solutions he thinks of required him to get a law passed, convince whites to help, petition the government, locate something impossible to find, get all black men to agree on an action, get his woman to cooperate, Get a loan, get a grant, get some help, or a long list of other obstacles he thinks he must overcome before he can do anything. The last place he looks for help is to his own determination and ingenuity. He has believed the hype. He thinks that the mountain is just too high to climb, and besides, he doesn't have a rope or a hope that he can succeed. He is too mentally lazy to start at the bottom. He doesn't realize that he's already at the bottom. It would be better for his wounded ego if he started this very day to try to become independent in some way. 
It would be better if he took charge of one of the problems he sees exiting in his existing in his neighborhood. It is never too late for him to learn farming, canning, poultry or beef production, how to operate a hospital, how to run a school, how to set up a first grade a first aid center, how to set up a grocery store, how to make shoes, how to build a bed, create a stove, weave a broom, turn a cotton into cloth, make a light bulb or to supply any number of the thousands of daily needs and wants of Amer African American people. He can't do most of the things of these things because he was not taught to think in terms of taking care of himself. In fact, he has been innuendoed into thinking that all of his needs would always be supplied by others and that they could do it quicker, cheaper, and better. They're doing it would save him time, money, and worry. But that is not how it is. It has turned out. The way it has turned out is that today he feels useless, unable to keep up, and helpless. There's so much to do and he has so little resources to do with that he is stunned into not doing anything. Yes, there are many black men who are entrepreneurs, but most of them supply the optional recreational needs of civilization. The basics which keep him tied and restricted from exerting masculinity are not made or controlled by him. He has no more ownership in America than the Indians, and they have none. This entire scenario comes down to education. He has never been taught the basics of survival or or the uh, he has never been taught the basics of survival or the psychology behind why he needs to know how. He has been mentally bullied into inaction. He has no memory of ever supplying his own needs nor of being responsible for himself. This lack of familiarity with independence has followed him home. Another place where it is not adept to at taking charge is his wards. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The lack of familiarity with independence has followed him home. Another place where he is not adept at taking charge of his wards because he has allowed others to set the rules and standards there too. As during the depression of the early 1930s, when jobs and food and opportunities are scarce, men become more important and hostile to each other and to the government. During the depression, white men and their families picketed, rioted, and often stormed grocery stores to get food for their families. Welfare was the first given to the poor whites during this era as a way to calm down the angry husbands and fathers who were not able to support their families. It was to only be, I'm sorry, it was to be only a temporary measure until the economy got better. But once the government had made available welfare payments, food stamps, and food rationing stamps, it became known as a charity, 
a temporary governmental assistance to be given to those unable to provide for themselves at the time. There was no requirement that the white male husband or father as head of the household had to leave home so that his family could qualify for welfare benefits. To the contrary, welfare was designed so that the family could stay together and maintain a household. Later, these rules changed. As the American economy became, becomes tighter and tighter and fewer jobs are available for white males, black men will be shoved more and more out of the workplace. In the cases where this does not happen, there will surface new hostilities toward them for having a job with so many white males unemployed and unable to secure their families. In the near future, there will be job wars. Based on who should be employed, men will actually start to physically fight over jobs. More women will be let go so that a man can work and more black men will sink into deeper hopelessness and outrage at having nothing to do. This situation is unavoidable based on the swelling national debt, failing bank institutions, and confusion in the government. All of this, along with huge debts, owed to America abroad that will remain uncollectible will set the stage for mass dissatisfaction between the haves and the have-nots. The black man's problem is not always that he does not have any money, but that he allocates his funds to the wrong expenditures. I'm sorry, expenditures. While big business in America complained throughout the Reagan era that his economic gymnastics caused the quickest Grand Slam redistribution, redistribution of wealth ever seen during a presidential term. This redistribution also caused a mass rearrangement in the lives of African Americans. High-paying plantations, which formerly provided many black families with dependable incomes, hospitalization, life insurance, and retirement benefits all but vanished. Many who were used to working and being comfortable turned into unemployment benefits, food stamps, and welfare. Black men were affected, trailing behind them despondent black women. Those eight years were crucial. Wealth, such as it was, was redistributed from grocery stores, rent, clothes, and consumer bills to the crack cocaine drug dealers. A lot of the money low-income blacks spent in their neighborhoods and urban shopping centers was redirected into the quickstand lifestyle of the drug culture. Never to be heard from again and causing many small locally owned suppliers of goods and services to bankrupt. Closed stores and boarded up buildings pulled property values down and rerouted traffic to other thriving areas. Many urban areas have multiple city blocks of closed down businesses, entire shopping centers and downtown business districts that have not been only existed on the black man's money, but employed him on some level, 
have disappeared. The middle and the middle class black man slid into low and the lower middle class black man landed flat on his back. There has developed the widest gap in income and lifestyle since the 30s as there are poor. I'm sorry. There has developed the widest gap in income and lifestyle since the 30s as there are now mainly only two classes of Americans, the rich and the poor. The broad area in the middle is filled with those trying to hang on for sheer will. The economy is not better. Jobs are not available and the recession might surprisingly slip into a depression and despite all that is happening as a warning, might catch the black man by surprise. Again, black men spend a lot of cash or credit on items bearing no resemblance to investments for their future survival in such a wavering, unsteady economy. He is not seen readily preparing for the days of want which are predicted to descend down shortly upon the whole country. In the late 1920s, installment debt was introduced prior to the Depression and the system of $1 down and $1 a week proliferated the start of the pre-spent income. Money received on Friday for working all week is already promised to someone for an item bought on Tuesday of the same week. Credit and credit cards are the greatest, most detrimental method of spending the black man has ever access to. It gave him a way to get his hands on anything he wants by just signing on the dotted line. Heaven. There are four categories of products produced by Europeans or Japanese which the black man can be counted on to spend his money for. The four main categories of major expenditures are 1. Clothes, designer in parentheses, and related accessories. 2. Specialty cars, vans, and fancy stereo equipment and music. 3. Restaurants, including fast food takeouts. 4. Sports and entertainment. Not only do they purchase these items regularly to keep up with fashion and technology advancements, but they willingly provide free advertisement by wearing or using products with brand names boldly displayed in a conspicuous spot like on their head, chest, or back. They memorize the brand names and whatever their latest product is. They have arranged these European and Japanese made items into categories of which one is the best, the next best, and the barely acceptable. To see how they dress, to give, they give the impression that they are rolling in dough. To date, it has not occurred to them to try to corner the market on consumer goods that African Americans use and buy the most of. His greatest thrills are derived from having the ability to afford the things he de desires to complement his image. No social reform group has ever been able to convince the black man to stop blowing his money on things that he could have without. He persists 
and financially enriching the very group of people who he claims treat him so badly. It's as if when he emotionally desires to possess and own a consumer item, he suspends those ideas until the transaction is complete. It's an it's as if the European shopkeepers become temporarily a non-person when he goes to them to buy something and once he leaves the store his uh, amnesia fades and he returns to the original politics that the white man is a capitalist. Capitalist. But they can't be capitalists without a steady stream of paying customers. The black man is a steady paying customer. It's as if he becomes so hypnotized by an item that this suspended state prevents him from recognizing the connection. It has a masochistic theme that suggests he wishes to reward his perceived oppressors for the privilege. <clears throat> Got a drink on that. The advertising specialists take great care to use creatively pointed language to attract select customers to a product. The intrinsic values created penetrate the egos of black men. The marketeers create such an aura of accomplishment for the individual to be able to afford and own an item in such a magnetizing way that black men dashingly run to stores to make a purchase literally foaming at the wallet. <clears throat> Excuse me. The advertisement contains another concept that plays on the emotions of consumers and that they send out messages about a product suggestive that owning or wearing the product will create an improved feeling. They imply that ownership of a certain thing will make one feel better and become more powerful than a locomotive and able to leap tall buildings in a single paycheck. They do this by projecting the exclusivity of wearing designer brands by making jewelry so divine that one simply must have some to be considered whole or by betraying an item as a special status symbol denoting the wearer or owner as superior. Black men have been indoctrinated with the idea that top of the line items, no matter how much they cost, are what he needs to feel alright with himself and guarantee the continued ballooning of his ego. He has even been psyched into bragging about how much he spent on something. This is just another trick that psychics I'm sorry. This is just another trick that psyches him into insisting on paying the selling price for a selected item so he can always have the satisfaction of knowing and letting others know that he owns the Rolls Royce edition of everything he has. So they buy items that make them feel good and items that make shop owners feel rich. Few black men are willing to give up the accompanying thrill experience when they buy something designated by advertisers and the media as special best. He does not ever want anyone to think 
he is mediocre in his taste and unable to afford something. This is not to say that advertisers are wrong in the way they sell their products. The black man has a responsibility. A responsibility to at least attempt to supply some of his own needs and desires. And a responsibility to know when he's being gamed on. It is not the advertisers who are at fault. It's him trying to develop his character based on wardrobe, fantasy, and state-of-art equipment. One of these days, very soon, black men is uh, the black man is going to regret not investing his hard-earned pennies on more sensible needs of survival. While the black man dislikes the fact that many Asian foreigners have come to America and progressed further in a shorter period of time than the black man has ever done in a hundred years, this is understandable because the black man is embarrassed and does not understand how they did it. The Orientals have established their own neighborhoods. They have their own churches, banks, hair salons, and video stores, and a long list of other businesses they built to serve their own people's needs and the needs of others. The Koreans, the Japanese, the Laotists, the Vietnamese, and Chinese have, in a relatively short time filled with long sacrifices, imagined themselves as shrewd business dealers and unified workers. They have earned the respect of many Europeans due to their perseverance against scrutiny of their odd customs and language barriers. Nevertheless, they now buy up many small and large grocery stores, laundromats, dry cleaners, and the like. They purchase most of these businesses in the African American communities. They have a different value system, so it takes them a while to understand the ways of the American Negro and vice versa. But eventually, the blacks start to patronize them out of necessity. They own the only stores in the proximity of where they live. The black man is sometimes hostile to the Asians because he feels threatened that they are taking over their communities and treats them differently from the white shop owners who previously owned the businesses. The Orientals are usually diligent workers and keep their spot organized. The black man resents this intrusion into his territorial world. However, the black man, in some cases, has shopped at the neighborhood grocer for all his life and it never occurred to him to try to buy or run the business himself. Then he gets mad when somebody else more industrious and willing to sacrifice comes along and seizes the opportunity to advance economically. It would not be surprising if the Orientals through their attorney or advisors were directed to the black communities as further dependent opportunities to make money every day, all day. It is no accident that they are slowly buying up all the businesses establishments available in the African-American populated areas. Everyone knows that the black man is a consumer. He buys from everyone else and sells to few. The agents say that they do not understand what kind of problem the black man in America has. They say all they do is find a spot 
stock it, open the doors, and the money walks right in. They say that making money in America is the easiest money they have ever earned. They report that some blacks come in and out of their stores several times a day and that they pay whatever the price is to get whatever they want. They say blacks eat all day long and drink alcohol just as frequently. In other words, the black man is totally dependent on others for survival has a short-term gratification goal, and is easy prey to anyone who can supply his needs. The black man should not be angry with the Asians. Instead, the sh the, he should try to learn from them. True, they have never been the kind of slave the black man has been, but many of them endured hardships to get to America. It seems that everyone feeds off the black man's disunity and laziness and failure to take responsibility for his own needs. Another interesting thing about the Asians is that it is very rare to see them shopping in Kroger, A&P, Pathmark, Jewelty, or 7-Eleven stores. It is equally odd to find them in major department stores or at the movies. The black men should wonder how do they get their food, buy their clothes, manage their, to mind their own business. They keep in contact with their homeland culture and spend their money among themselves. They do not wear the latest styles, few name brand sneakers, no heavy gold chains, and no oriental drunks are seen on the streets, and nor does one find them living in the subway stations or cardboard boxes in the park. They eat together, sleep together, shop together, and plan together. If they are in downtown areas, it's because they are working fruit or clothing stands. They set up early in the morning and close late in the evening. It is difficult to disentangle distinguish who is who and which tribe they belong to because all tend to favor each other. When asked why they attach such a small markup on some of their products, they respond that they count and save every penny they earn. If they only make a few pennies per item, they are willing to do so because they are steadily stockpiling money. They have come to America against many odds to enjoy what they deem as free enterprise system and for a better life for their families. Contrary to the negative opinions black men have about them, they did not come to America just to make the black man look like a fool. It seems that the black man is very perturbed about another nationality moving in and taking money they intended to continue spending with the white man. The agents have disproved many of the black man's theories and excuses he uses to explain why he cannot grasp an economy foothold. Often when other black men open a store comparable to white business owner colleagues, they find that black will not patronize them. They blame their lack of customership on poor service, no credit policies, expensive markups on products, slack business hours, inferior quality of foodstuffs, and bad attitudes by cashiers or help. 
The Caucasians and the Asians support each other while they work the kinks out. They welcome people of their own nationality, nationality into business and offer advice, financial support for free labor to help them get on their feet. No business is fail safe on the first day or during the first few years. Having an idea is one thing. Executing an idea is another. There are three questions that the black man should ask the Asians. One, where did they get their food from since they rarely shop in white man's supermarket? Two, where do they get their clothes from since they do not shop in white man's clothing stores? Three, how and what rules do they follow that enable them to live so closely together in the same house without fighting or killing one another every Friday and Saturday night? The answers to these questions might shed some light on some of I'm sorry. The answer to these questions might shed some light on some very pressing barriers that black man encounters when he tries to figure out how to be independent of the white man. The black man lends credence to the premise once a slave, always a slave because he does not appear either capable of acquiring the skill or drumming up enough unity of purpose or supports his brothers to get off the bottom rung of the ladder. So far, no leader, no plan, no government support or education has been acceptable to the black man to inspire him to change his own condition. His refusal to do anything for himself in the way of supplying his own needs is part of the reason he has lost his woman and children because they have to go to Europeans for all their needs. This keeps black men from being in a position of power and authority over his family because they all go to the same people to fill their needs be, be they food, clothing, shelter or employment <clears throat> excuse me guys This makes every other man appear greater and more powerful and ultimately more respected. The black man is also frustrated because of the stigma attached to receiving welfare from the government. He knows that many of his women are on welfare and supporting his children from it. But he feels so violated and cheated out of his birthright that he has not been able to decline reparations of any kind and begs for more. The only reparations he has received come in the form of welfare, food stamps, Medicaid, health care coverage, WIC, Section 8, disability, affirmative action, and worker, workmen's compensation checks. It seems that black women and children look to the black man for financial solutions and he looks to the white man. This is not a secure or comfortable cycle. Welfare is just a form of economic subsidy. 
When major corporations receive welfare, they describe it as low interest loans, agricultural assistance, tax, tax expenditures, accelerated, de accelerated depreciation, deferral of capital gains, business and property tax refunds, and interest-free carrying charges on public purpose states and local debt. All of these forms of welfare subsidy, I'm sorry, all of these are forms of welfare subsidy. They give money to some, loan money to others, and save money for the rest. So the entire American parliamentary effort is entrenched in welfare fraud in one way or another. The black man must decide to stop rambling in the tax pockets of other races. They must learn to work among themselves based on their collective need to, prov to prove to themselves that they can. He cannot regain the amount of dignity he, had, he was stripped of 400 years ago, but if they start now to practice at conformity and cooperation with each other, they could make it without welfare of any kind. Many times his lack of strength is brought on by anxiety which leaves him unable to move his physical body into action. The resulting depression entrenches him in a mentally catatonic state. He is not motivated because he is uninspired. He won't even consider this as a subject. The black man has had a difficult time trying to revive his fractured ego strictly by self propulsion. He continues to search for a way or a sign that informs him that he is authentic for real. A few decades ago, if a black man accomplished any kind of startling or unusual advancement, he was routinely offered a left-hand compliment and told, you're a credit to your race. Many black men were told this and took pride in being reminded that he was superior to the rest of his people and never considered that he was never told how many credits he needed to matriculate, matriculate and receive validation of his self-worth. It was a subtle implication that he was lacking in something and needed credits to keep him to help him keep score of his progress towards getting it. His capabilities have always been in doubt and his massive historical accomplishments approached with suspicion by other nationalities. When European explorers pillaged through Africa in search of precious stones and glistening metals, they often uncovered spectacular artifacts such as statues, urns, jewelry, fashion, furnishings, drawings, weapons, or masks. They were quite quick in suggesting that it is impossible for ancient African citizens to have created such modern beautiful items that obviously another European has preceded them to the area and designed such artifacts themselves. If they chose to, they could print such fraudulent information in their journals. African black men always discovered progressive techniques to fill their specific needs and specialize in skilled craftsmanship and automated 
manufacturing. They devised many check and balance systems as a way to stay on track of their goals. The black man's ancestor took enormous prestige in their business and trade practices because he knew he was born to work and born to have many wives and sire many children. The black man was gypped out of receiving credit for many of his historical artifact contributions up to about 1910. After then, it was impossible to deny it. For several years now, there has existed black men who are grassroots entrepreneurs who travel around the country frequently co frequenting conventions, art shows, outdoor festivals, and other densely populated areas displaying products and wares. These black men are referred to as street vendors or just vendors. They are black men who decided to forge ahead and experiment with working for themselves and being their own boss. They mostly travel in cars or vans, truck or buses, and other body and offer body oils, incense, artwork, clothes, hats, shoes, expertly handed craft, handcrafted leather goods, designer quality handcrafted jewelry. Records, records, African flavored fabrics, t-shirts, dolls, books, tapes, records, buttons, hair products, cosmetics, food stuff, and all sorts of ethnic goods. They have to cope with bad weather, poor sales, licensing, taxes, heavy baggage, long hours, theft, and fluctuating cost of booth space. But on the other hand, they enjoy the excitement of travel, catering to an ever-changing customer base, the thrill of motion, meeting new people, networking, participating in trade and commerce, making money seven days a week, the pleasure of not being confined to an hourly wage, freedom to take off when they get ready, the opportunity to learn wholesale buying and calculations of retail markup, the camaraderie of other black man vendors, the ability to provide jobs, learn investing, and gain some self-respect through ownership and recognition in the national marketplace. Black men vendors complain that black that when black patronize them, they demand special deals and haggle about their price to try to negotiate for lower costs. They say this started out to be interesting and similar to the marketplace excitement in the homeland. But they say now the haggling has become negative, consisting of outright demands for cheaper price or threat to shop elsewhere. Black men vendors say this is unfair to them as businessmen because blacks would not think of shopping at a major white owned or operated establishment and asking for a few dollars off the stated price. Unless there is a sale, they pay the price marked and get their receipt and leave the store smiling. Black men vendors say this puts them at a precarious position because they are often forced to reduce their products to a no-profit price in order to do business with their own kind. They say 
They are trying to make a living like any other man in business and offer their wares at fair prices for their special interest consumer markets. But they can't afford to give their inventory away at wholesale prices to retail customers. They say blacks treat them like they are trying to rip off the public or something. Black man vendors say they are equally disturbed that black organizations offer them booth space at, a, at their conventions and meetings and charge them healthy fees, sometimes up to $1,000 or more, but no, make no plans or efforts to direct their conventioners to their vending stands, usually located in the same building or close proximity to their conferences. They charge the host of the conventions without allowing the hotels to offer their attendants free bus trips to white shopping malls or trade centers to ignore their presence. They say they believe that the organizers of these conventions are obligated to make sure they receive enough exposure in their literature and buy signs and advertisements to make sure they earn a profit on their booth space investments. The organization charges them for the space and the hotel charge them for the table, chairs, lighting, ashtrays, and any other display items they may need. They also have their travel costs, food lodging, inventory, and other regular expenses attached to their roving lifestyle. So they want more accountability and cooperation from the black organizations who solicit their money for booth space to add extra flair of activity to their conventions. These are not unreasonable requests. Black man vendors regrettably report they have a high occurrence of shoplifting stealing from their display tables, mostly by other blacks. The black man's overriding problem is that he has made his main challenge in life to be trying to win acceptance and approval from whites. His major goal in life is to prove to whites that he is just as good as they are and deserving of having what they have. These are harsh realities that he will deny to his dying day, which according to the government statistics is not too far off if he keeps behaving like he is now. He acts like his only obstacle in life is to convince whites to accept him as an equal. He and he has the delusional idea that anything he tries to do which is not sanctioned or endorsed by the government will fail miserably. He wants their blessings. He wants their jobs. And he wants their women. Oh, he may talk freely about the natural equality of all mankind, but he sees the white man as Mount Everest, the biggest stumbling block he has ever known of, and he feels like a molehill digging around at the bottom. When he works on one of their jobs, no matter how much he earns, he knows he hates having to jump to work every time the boss walks in, and he detests having to speak extra nicely to the big boss of the company every time he encounters him or her. He deplores the fact that if his boss or supervisor shows up, he has to act like he's busy even if there's nothing to do. 
He can't ever report that his job doesn't keep him busy enough because he's afraid he will be required to do more, more work for the same salary. He is trying to do as little work as possible and uses up a lot of his concentration powers trying to figure out how to work slower or get out of doing certain tasks on the job. He only feels this way because it is not his job. He is a guest employee which he works on a job created, owned, and operated by another nationality. When a man works for himself, he is always willing to go the extra mile so he gets more done and ultimately makes more money. The black man acts like he has been hypnotized into an employee instead of an employer. Black men do not want to pay child support. Supplying money to pay for what they consider unnecessary needs for their children, especially if they have more than one, is not a priority to them. They take no special pride in knowing that they are supporting their own seed. In fact, if there is any way they can get out of doing anything for their children, they will do so. These days, the courts have new rulings to track them down, garnish their wages, take it out of their tax refunds, arrest them, put liens on their car or property to make them finance the lives of their children they created with their own sperm and blood. If he and the child's mother do not have an active, ongoing relationship, it is rare that he will support his own baby. His attitude is that the federal or state welfare or food subsidy available lets him off the hook. He would rather see his women on welfare or wait and see if her new man will assume responsibilities for his new babies. He thinks that by paying child support that he is doing the baby mother's a favor and letting her rule him in some way. He does not realize that he should be ashamed to have the white man haul him into court because he refuses to take care of his baby. He is detached mentally from his seed and his content to let the government be the providing father for his children. Sometimes he gets with another woman and does more for her children than he does his own children. He behaves as if there is some magic wand that a black mother can wave to provide for her children without his help. What is to happen when the welfare and the food stamps budget runs out? Who is to take care of his children then? And where are all the black fathers who sired almost 500,000 non-white children rotting in orphanages? And how can a black man consider himself sane and go about his daily life so happy-go-lucky, dressing in the finest clothes and driving the best cars while denying his seed, time, and money? And that, my friends, is the end of chapter six. Whew. That was a tough one. A lot of messages in there. I could have, I could have pushed the message button on every sentence, like. <laughs>
feel good but as she explained it's delusion it's delusion <sighs> that being said chapter 7 is about recreation maybe it's not as tough maybe it is who knows it's not as long, that's for sure. But until next time, I appreciate all you guys tuning in to the Cold Logic Bookshare. <sighs> y'all see the cash app at the bottom. Hopefully y'all are if y'all are into the listening, y'all actually go buy the book. It's only about twenty dollars. Well this one thirty, the other one twenty. The black man's got to the black woman 20. But I think I should have read this one first. But it's all good. It's all good. We're going to learn anyway. We're going to learn anyway. With that being said, let me turn up the vibes and we're going to get out of here. <laughs> Thank you.